Well, g'day, guys. Uh, we are in our covenant series, and we are up to the Adamic covenant. Last week, we did an introduction to the covenant so that we had an understanding of the covenants. And I couldn't help but last week just like steal from all of my content from this week and just throw it all through last week's sermon. Uh, so you're going to see a lot of um, some of the similar sort of themes. But we're going to be looking right now at the covenant that God made with Adam in the garden. Because when we understand this covenant, we're going to understand a whole range of different things. And I want to start by talking about who God is. And most, more specifically, the fact that God is an author. God is, you could probably just say, the author. The author of all things. This world is His story and we are His characters. The story of mankind is not some random story of coincidences. It's not unguided. It's not adrift alone in this absurd world that we find ourselves on, uh, like a raft on the seas of chance. That's not what we're in. This is a story written by a divine author. God is the divine storyteller who writes his tales, not with the men and women of imagination like we do, but with real, living, breathing humans. Shakespeare famously said, you guys will know this one, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances and one man in his time plays many parts. In the beginning, God speaks the whole universe into existence. As the divine author, he speaks it into existence. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that God upholds the universe by the word of his power. His words do it. The Psalms even speak of God as having written our entire life in a book, like a story, like a novel. Psalm 139.16 says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Not only are all our days ordained in a book, this is the book that was written by a storyteller. One of the things that's interesting about God is not only is he the author, he's a character. He features within the story. Joe Rigney says that, you must, that we must understand God as author and God as character. These are the two ways that God relates to the world. On the one hand, he is the transcendent God, high above us all, the Alpha and the Omega. And on another hand, he is the God who enters into the story of this world as a character, walking with his creatures, engaging in conversation with his fellow characters, and celebrating the wins and mourning the losses. He's the character who weeps with us, who has compassion on us, and who leads us out of the darkness and into the light. See, we worship a God who became flesh. He dwelt among us. When we look at the covenants of the Bible, we are looking at what, probably put in a category of what theologians call biblical theology. This is the study of the Bible as a story, written by one divine author. We, of course, know that there are many authors of Holy Scripture, but we know that God, through the Holy Spirit, penned every page through these men. And He reveals more and more as Scripture is unfolding. Revelation keeps coming out. We learn more and more and more until we end up in the book of Revelation. Covenants are kind of like, imagine it like, you know, in trilogy when an author will write a, a series and there'll be like three books. Uh, I couldn't work out what the um, word is for a story in six parts. Um, so 
I don't even know. So a, trilo- a, 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 a double trilogy, who knows? But you can almost think of the covenants as like one book and then the next covenant in line is the next book and it's all like different sections of the story that God is telling, different ways that he relates to mankind. And today we are right at book one, the Adamic covenant. Here we see paradise lost. We see creation torn asunder and we have the explanation for why everything we see in this world is as it is, why it is this way. And so my first point is this, what is the Adamic covenant? I want to pick up in Genesis 2. We're going to be in Genesis a lot, so you do want to have your thumb on the page of Genesis. And we're going to be reading from verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Now let's go to Genesis 2, 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from the day that you eat of it. You shall surely die. Now, theologians call the Adamic covenant the covenant of works. It's usually what you'll see, the covenant of works. Now, when you think of the idea of works, do you normally think, oh, that sounds like a great covenant. That sounds awesome. No, we're thinking covenant of works. We're thinking hard work. We're thinking hard yakka. We're thinking that's bad. You know, if you guys have been in Christian circles a long time, you know that we always contrast grace and works. Faith and works. We always have them against each other. Works bad, faith good. And when we come to the garden, we ought not to view this covenant in a negative way. The covenant that God makes here with Adam is a wonderful covenant. You have to get that right. It's a covenant of blessing through and through. This is a great covenant. This is why the Westminster Confession calls it a covenant of life. And uh, that's what I want to call it today. A covenant of life. This is what we're reading right now. This covenant did rely on Adam's work. That is true. He had to obey God. He had to obey. That is true. It is a covenant of works, but it wasn't a harsh covenant. It's not a hard task. See, Adam lived in a world of yeses. Everything he saw was yes. Go for it, Adam. One no. A single no. Verse 17, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. And not only did God make a covenant of life with Adam, but he made a covenant that Adam was capable of keeping. He could have kept this covenant. It wasn't out of the realm of possibility that he was always, uh, that he was absolutely incapable of keeping it. He had everything he needed to keep the terms and he simply just had to avoid that one tree and he would meet all the requirements. And this covenant applied to Adam. It applied to his wife Eve and it applied to all his descendants after him. And I want you to notice that this includes every single one of us. The Adamic covenant is still in effect. Every single one of us here today are a member of this covenant. 
Each of us are the descendants of our first ancient parents, Adam and Eve. And because of this covenant made with all of Adam's posterity and lineage, this covenant is made with us too. We are still called to be fruitful and to multiply. We're still called to fill the earth and to subdue it. We're still called to have dominion over this world and to tend it and to care for it the way that God intends. You don't get to change it. You don't get to change our mission. You don't get to decide, well, I don't want to treat the world that way. Well, I don't want to do these things. These are things that God calls for humanity. We are to continue God's work of bringing order to chaos and turning wilderness into flourishing. And the world still brings forth fruit for us. For without this complex ecosystem of biological life sustaining and keeping itself, whether it's in the soil or the air or the water, everything would cease to exist outside of all the things that we see here in the Adamic covenant. And one of the fulfillments of the covenants we see is marriage. In order for Adam to do his task, he needs a helper. And so God makes him a woman. And so whenever we get married, whenever you see someone walk down that aisle, I was just at a wedding yesterday. I saw my uh, cousin get married down in Canberra. And uh, it wasn't a Christian wedding. But when I looked at that wedding, I was looking at the Adamic covenant. They don't believe God was not mentioned once. Not a single mention of God. Everything was about their love, their own vows. They said all the things that they wanted to say. They exchanged rings. You're probably not thinking of Adam and Eve in the garden when you go to a wedding, but you absolutely should. That's exactly what you should be thinking about. This is the most ancient institution. It's the most ancient covenant. It was there before sin entered the world. Every time we get, you see a marriage, we see the longest tradition humanity has ever had. And it goes all the way back to the garden. Last week, we talked a lot about the covenantal nature of marriage. We're not going to be talking about that a lot today. But marriage is not separate from the Adamic covenant. Every person who gets married is in part fulfilling the covenant that God made with humanity to be fruitful and to multiply. We don't get to take away multiplication from marriage. In the original world, the earth was rich. It was bountiful. Marriage was a wonderful blessing and children were a sure reward. The task was joyful. But clearly, the pre-fall world of Adam is absolutely different from the world we inhabit today. And why is that? Because Adam was faithless to the covenant. I know, it's like spoilers. I'm sure you guys were waiting with bated breath to see what was going to happen there. The Garden of Eden and the world of flourishing and peace, no more. Adam ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the book of Genesis tells us that his eyes opened. We have a cursed world now. He sees everything uh, now differently because sin has entered in. The previous world of unimaginable beauty and blessing is now replaced by a world of curse and disaster. But remember that this takes place in a story. And any good English teacher, I only know of one English teacher that's here, will tell you that every story needs a certain thing. Someone might be able to help me. What does a story need? A bad thing that happens in a story is a certain word for it. It's called a complication. Complication. Sorry, I didn't want to put you guys on the spot. Uh, it's a problem that needs to be solved. Whenever you read a book, you know that at some point in the book, something bad is going to happen. I mean, it, have you guys ever read a book where it's good the whole way through, where there isn't relational conflict, where there isn't some issue that happens in the book? Every story has a complication. And this 
is the great complication we see in the Adamic covenant. The greatest of all complications, the one that spanned all the way up until Christ. And that is death. Death is the great complication. And death is a curse. And it's a curse that comes from the Adamic covenant. Every time you see a person die, every funeral you go to, that person dies because of the Adamic covenant. They will return to dust. For dust we all are, because we all descend from Adam. My second point is this, the Adamic blessings and curses. Last week I told you that the purpose of covenant is blessing. That is why people enter into covenants. No one enters into a marriage, for instance, a marriage covenant, and says, I'm looking forward to the marital curses that come with marriage. No one wants that. We all want the blessings. Every time you see covenant in the Bible, you should be thinking, blessing, blessing, blessing. That's exactly what it is. Uh, You might remember the definition that I gave you last week. I said a covenant, biblically speaking, is an official union between two or more parties, sovereignly administered for the purpose of blessing all participants. Curses come when we break the union through unfaithfulness to the terms, and to do so brings curse. God enters into a covenant with Adam, but he doesn't just enter into a covenant with Adam, he enters into a covenant with Adam's household, which at this point in the story was him and his wife Eve. But he also enters into it with his future descendants, all those that will come from him. It's a theme that repeats throughout the Bible. With Noah, God enters into a covenant with Noah, but also his household and all the descendants that come after him. When he comes to Abraham, he says to Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant with you, with your household and with all your descendants. When you come to David, what is the covenant with David? I'm going to make a covenant with you, David, with your household and with all your descendants. And God administers all these covenants himself. And the point of all of them is blessing. And so what blessings do we see in the Adamic covenant? Well, I made a slide up for you guys to help you help you know it. Here are all the blessings, and then parallel to them are the curses. We're going to go through all these blessings. First one, the image of God is the most important blessing. Genesis 1, 26 to 27 says, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Now, it's one of the most tricky puzzles theologically to work out what exactly is the image of God. There's been a lot of ink spilled in it. What we learn in Genesis here is he says we are made after God's likeness. That is, we are somehow like God. We aren't God. We aren't little gods, but we are like God. We have characteristics that are similar to God. And this has led many to conclude that it might be our creativity that is the image of God. The fact that we create things, just like God is a creator, we're a creator. God makes out of nothing, but we make by reorganizing the stuff that God has given to us. Perhaps it's our rationality, that we have rational thought, that we can think with reason and we can reason into the future and see patterns. Um, perhaps that's what it is. Maybe it's our spiritual life. Maybe because humans are spiritual creatures, maybe the image of God is a spiritual reality that connects us to God. Maybe it's the fact that we're a social creature and we have all these complex social systems. But whatever it is, what it means to be in the image of God is to be His representative. We are like Him, 
and we represent him. And we are supposed to continue his work that he started in Genesis 1 across all of creation. We've got to bring it to a completion. We've got to finish the work that he wanted and set us to do. And we do it as his representative, as his viceroys in an effect. And we are like him. In whatever regard you want to believe the image of God to be, we possess his image and that gives us a, um, a value which places us higher than the rest of the animal kingdom. The second one we have on this list is gender. At the end of it, he says, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. There are two kinds of humans, man and woman, only two. Mankind is created in God's image, but we're created as two separate beings, male and female. And these two genders are the only two kinds of people you will ever meet. We are like each other as man and woman, but we're also different from each other. Anyone who has had son and daughters know that there's a difference. Anyone who is married to a woman or married to a man knows that there is a difference between you and the other person. We have similarities for sure. But we have differing roles. We're different creatures. There are two kinds of people that God makes in this world. And when God created us distinctly as male and female, He declared it to be good. It was a good and perfect design. Gender is a blessing. Remember this, of the Adamic covenant, even though our culture may have turned it into a curse, it is God's blessing. Number three, children. The blessing of the Adamic covenant was children. The fact that we all have children right here today is because of the Adamic covenant, because that is what God wanted. The union of man and woman was intended to yield children. says, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In uniting man and woman, this purpose of God was doing it not because They could spend their love on each other and just be intoxicated with each other's love. Their love was supposed to bubble over and result in more things. Their love was supposed to produce things and produce more images, little images of God who would grow into big ones. And they are to spread over the four corners of God's earth, filling the earth with countless uh, little people that can bring God glory. Next one, number four, dominion. Fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The purpose of mankind was to have dominion. And this would be a great blessing. We were the caretakers of the world and we were to have dominion over all the animals. We were to bring nature underneath the order that God intended. Number five, I have, I put in good food and work and I connected them because we work for the good food that we can see. We see in verse 29, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And we see when God created Adam, in verse 15 of chapter 2, he says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden. The earth was going to yield amazing food for Adam, giving him all his nutritional needs. Every plant that you eat, every good green thing that you eat, the Adamic covenant. I know we don't often think about it, but that's where it comes from. God made the Adamic covenant so good and so blessing, uh, blessed it 
Meat, if you're eating red meat, we have to wait till the Noahic Covenant. We can thank God for the Noahic Covenant when we get there. But every green thing we eat, every wonderful plant that we eat, we thank God for the Adamic Covenant because of that. And Adam, he had to tend and keep the garden so that it remained fruitful and flourishing. And this work was not burdensome. It was the work of a master gardener, keeping everything working in unity. Number six, life. Genesis 2.9. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam had the right to eat of the tree of life and live forever. This is one of the blessings. Now, unfortunately, we no longer have this one. This one is gone. We no longer get to uh, take part in it. He had every expectation as Adam that he would never cease to be. There will always be endless joys, more discoveries to make in God's immense world. Life, not just merely continuity of existence, but life abundant was available to Adam in this covenant. And we receive life, but not for long. We are a vapor here today, gone tomorrow, until we return to the dust in which we came. Number seven, a connection with God. Adam and God talked to each other face to face. Adam was able to behold the glory of God and to interact with God without dying. After the fall, you see all throughout the Old Testament warnings, you cannot see God and live. But Adam didn't have to worry about that. He had a close connection to God. And last one, the rule of God. Adam and Eve were under the direct rule of God. They were his representatives and acted on his behalf as his image bearers. They were not slaves to anyone, but not for long. See, all these blessings we've read, they're for Adam's household. And there's a lot more probably in this that I haven't mentioned. But in our unresurrected state, these are all these amazing blessings that we have. But Adam failed the covenant. He had one no, one stipulation, and he broke the covenant of God. Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, She took of its fruit and ate. And she also took some to a husband who was with her, and he ate. Being faithful to God's covenant meant that these things would continue forever. Being faithless to these introduced what God said, death. The opposite of life and creation. God brought order into chaos, life into non-life, flourishing from scarcity, and existence from non-existence. But now sin is introduced. And what do, we, what do we see sin doing? Well, it's rebellion to God. And the necessary logical outworking of that ultimately is death. There is nothing else that brings life outside of God. So by rejecting Him, you are signing yourself up to death. See, sin flips it. Instead of order coming from chaos, chaos now erupts from order. Death comes from life and makes non-existence out of existence. It turns flourishing into scarcity. The image of God is now tainted. The relationship of the man with the man and the woman is now overturned. We can see that in the relationships of every man and woman that have ever lived. None of them have ever gotten along perfectly. None of us have perfect marriages. All of us face the curse. Children are now brought forth in pain. The natural order that would have been a delight to subdue now fights against us. The fields and forests now are cursed and yield thorn and thistles. Eternal life with God is now impossible. 
and replaced with death. And lastly, the direct rule of God has now been replaced by a pretender who has come and placed us underneath his authority, the serpent who deceived mankind. But even in these curses, I want you to notice, are blessings. And you might say, how can you find any blessings in this? This sounds pretty horrible. It wasn't total death. God extended mercy. You see, the ground was supposed to yield its fruit, and we rebelled. God could have said, ground is no longer going to bear fruit for you. But he didn't say that. It will yield fruit now, but only by hard work. Women collectively could be cursed and made barren. Society would die off. There'd be no children. But he doesn't do it. Instead, he restricts it to just great peril and pain, but not barrenness. Death could come straight away, but instead it comes gradually. The image of God could be destroyed, but we find out in the Noahic covenant that it still exists. It's still there. We still have it somehow. It's marred though. It's broken somehow. And to fix these curses, you have to connect mankind back to God, the source of all life. If you want to get rid of death, you have to connect yourself back in with life. But now something significant has happened. God is perfect, He's pure, and He's just. And the right thing for God to do is to destroy us, is to get rid of His creation, of all that is causing all this devastation, and, and, and just destroy it. But He doesn't destroy it. How can we be connected to Him again? How does that happen? Because He can't just sweep our sins under the rug now. He would not be just. He'd be among the ranks of one of the most wicked judges on earth if he swept away sin. We expect all our human judges to punish sin. If they don't, what do we say about them? They're corrupt judges. They're wicked judges, right? If you had someone, let's say, that he murdered a member of your family, he gets brought before the judge, and his defense was this. Judge, I know that I killed that person, but 99.99% of people that I've met in my entire life, I've not killed them. That's a pretty good murder to non-murder ratio. Look at all the good things that I've done. And if the judge said, mate, that is a very good point. Off you go, out back on the street. We would be thinking, he's not in here because he hasn't murdered other people. He's in here because he murdered that one person. He's here facing his sins. And we often think that somehow our good deeds, the good things that we've done, we can throw them in front of God and bribe him and say, look at all the good things we've done. Overlook our bad deeds. But what we think if a human judge did that? And we think somehow God is worse of a judge than our judges. We hold him to less of a standard. You know why we hold him to less of a standard? Because we have to. Because if he has the same standard that we expect of our judges, we're in big trouble. We're sinners. We've rejected God. We've committed, committed many horrible acts. And so what happens? Does God destroy us? Does He judge us? Does He send us off into the outer darkness where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth? And see you later, guys. I'll start a new creation. No. He makes a new covenant. It's a different one to this one, the covenant of life. The first one depended on Adam's obedience. The second one depends not on man's obedience, but God's faithfulness. God said, He's going to do it. God says, I'm going to make it happen. The covenant of life God made with Adam depended on, as I said, his obedience, but a new covenant's going to be made, the covenant of grace. And it's prefigured here 
to Eve. My third point is this, the covenant of grace revealed. God says this to Satan in Genesis 3.15. I've got a slide for it. Here it is. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this is what theologians call the covenant of grace because it's a gift. And that's what grace is, a gift to the undeserved. God says here to Satan that from Eve, someone will destroy you. And through that, I will rescue these people. Did Adam and Eve deserve this? No. They didn't. Does this depend on the agency of the woman? Does she have to obey and then the seed will come from her? No. Who's going to do this? God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. God's going to do this. We don't have to rely on an Adam, our father that failed. We rely on God now. We're going to rely on him. He's going to make it work. He's going to execute it through history. The serpent who once tried to ruin the creation of God and seize mankind for himself will instead be defeated by his newfound ally. He tried to turn the woman against the man. And now God is going to use the woman to destroy the serpent. He is going to reverse what happened. The relationship between mankind and Satan is now forever at odds. Yes, we are underneath Satan's authority, but he hates us because we are the vehicle by which he will be defeated. He knows that. He seeks to manipulate us and wield us for his own benefit, but at the same time, he is suspicious of us. He's skeptical of us. He knows we're his enemy now. And God promises here that a Messiah figure will come. We know him as the serpent crusher, the one who will crush the head of the serpent, who will tread on his head and crush him once for all. But we also learn here that the serpent's going to do something as well. It says here, he, uh, you shall bruise his heel. Now we know this in Australia, we get plenty of snakes here. We know that all it takes is one bite from a king brown snake on the heel and you, you're good as dead unless you get to the hospital. But let's say we, 100 years ago, you're good as dead. Right? And so here we have this prophecy. You're going to get him in the heel. You're going to kill him. But he's going to kill you. You're going to kill each other. Really interesting prophecy here, isn't it? The entire narrative flow of the Bible, everything in the Bible, flows from this point, this prophecy. We're waiting for this guy. Who will crush the head of the serpent? Have you ever noticed why there's so many genealogies in the Bible? Why there's so many households? Because we're waiting for someone. Who is he? Who's he going to be? And who's he going to come from? We're following the offspring of the woman. As Satan had tricked Eve into eating, and so now God was going to bring Satan's destroyer from a woman. And the reason it's a covenant of grace is because it's exactly that. It's grace. It's undeserved favor. It's a gift. Look at this amazing gift that God has given to us right here. I will rescue you. Praise God. Praise Him for this undeserved grace. God does not owe us anything. What we deserve is death. That's what the Adamic covenant says. And yet God will show his hand. By the end of the story, 
the serpent is defeated, mankind is rescued. And God will do this through a new Adam, through the wife of a new bride. And interestingly, marriage is a picture of the covenant of grace as well. Paul refers to uh, marriage as this great mystery which speaks of Christ's union to the church. Even the Adamic covenant of marriage speaks to the covenant of grace. It speaks beyond itself to a far greater reality. We need to be offspring of a better union than Adam and Eve. We need to be descendants of a better covenant than Adam's covenant. We are the children of a different union, the union of Christ and the church. Even in our earthly marriages, we ought to image and demonstrate this graciousness. That's why Paul quotes this passage in Genesis. He says this in Genesis 5, 31 to 32. We may have an image for it, we may not. There we go. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. See, Adam is not the serpent crusher. He failed his task, and so we're looking for a better father, a better federal head who can represent us. And this is why the Bible refers to Adam as a type of Christ. In Romans 5.14, we see this. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. All throughout our series in the covenant, we are going to be referring to this thing called types. Think of them as patterns. Now, when someone wants to knit a cardigan, and correct me if I'm wrong, anyone who knits here, you need a pattern, don't you? That's the thing you need. If you're going to knit anything, you need a pattern. And this pattern shows you what you need to bring into existence. And when you've done it, you have made the same cardigan as all the other people who have used the same pattern. The hope is, right? The hope is when you get to it, you've ended up with the same cardigan. You can think of it as like a mold. The word type that Paul uses here is kind of like something that you pour iron in to create something. It's like a mold. And when you pour iron in, you might create a sword. You bring the sword out, you give it to someone. What do you do with that mold? You don't throw it away. You make another sword out of it and another sword and another sword. And then you have all these swords that are this type of sword, right? That have come from this one type, this one mold. And so what's going on here? A type in the Bible is a pattern that God writes into his story. Something that gives us important clues and hints. Paul says here that Adam is a type of Christ. Somehow, Adam is cast in a similar mold as Christ is. There are many similarities between the two. See, if we fall in Adam, then we need a new Adam, right? We need a new mold. We need a new pattern. We need a new guy. If we mess up the cardigan, we need to come back to the pattern and make a better cardigan. We need a better Adam. We need a new covenant head of a new humanity who could be brought back into connection with God. And that's why Paul goes on to say in verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, how much more, uh, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Adam passed on his sin to the entirety of mankind by his act of disobedience. But there's a new Adam, a new type of Adam, Jesus. And he passes on grace and the free gift of salvation to all who are joined to him by faith. Jesus was cast in a similar mold to Adam. In fact, he took on the same flesh as Adam. But he was better in every way than Adam. His new humanity, so much more glorious. His covenant, so much more better. 
When we go through the Bible, we'll see types of Christ on every page, right? You might come to the story of Joseph. And there's no page in the Bible anywhere that will tell you that Joseph is a type of Christ. But when you know the pattern of Christ, you can see him in Joseph, and you can see him in David, and you can see him in the Psalms, and you can see him in many different stories, and you realize that through the storytelling of God, he prefigures and shows us Jesus over and over and over and over again. And we're going to be talking about types a lot, and so we need to know this. When we understand these stories and events throughout all of history, and we look at them through the lens of covenant, not only are we going to understand Christ better, but we'll be under, able to understand the story that God is telling right now. Because God tells similar stories again and again and again. And He receives glory again and again and again. And each of them, they're unique. They're not quite the same as the stories that came before, but there is a common pattern that we see. And so we can also read history the same way. We can read history with similar patterns that God shows to His righteous ones, to the people that are His. And through their suffering, how God brings vindication and success and triumph. And we often feel like those patterns are for them back in history. But we don't realize that God tells the same stories again and again and again right now, today. And so in the Adamic covenant, the covenant that we still stand in today, praise God we've been rescued from it. Praise God that death will no longer have a hold of us because of the second Adam that came who conquered death and led us into a new garden. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your great love and for your mercy, how you showed the serpent all that time ago in the garden that from the woman you would bring a serpent crusher that would destroy him and redeem humanity. We thank you, Lord, that we have seen your manifold wisdom. We have seen how wonderful your works, how all throughout history you have solved these many conundrums and these many issues. You were able to both be just and the justifier. You were able to rescue and redeem a sinful people, although we did not deserve it. I pray, Lord, for every man, woman, and child here as members of the Adamic covenant, that you would cause them to have faith in the Lord Jesus, that they would receive the promise of the covenant of grace that they would see the work that you have done and you have done by your faithfulness and not by our own. And I pray, Lord, that everyone here would believe it and trust it and hope in it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.